We're going to talk about coming home because the Bible is full of that image. I'd like to read a text from Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, where Moses instructs the people of God in the things of God. And he begins with one of the longest sentences in the Bible, which means it's tough to read. So he says, And when these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, and with all your heart and with all of your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all of these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Phil and Arlene were talking, and Arlene said to Phil, Hey, I heard you flew to California for a vacation. It must have been terrific. Phil said, No, actually, it was terrible. She said, What do you mean it was terrible? You went to California. He said, Well, it was awful. I missed my bus to the hotel from the airport. She said, That's bad. He said, No, actually, it was good. I hailed a taxi, and the taxi driver was very affable. We had a good conversation. She said, well, that's good. He said, well, no, actually, it's bad. His transmission went before we even got out of the the, uh, airport. She said, oh, that's terrible. No, actually, it was good. You see, he still had reverse. He took me all the way to the hotel, 10 miles, and when we got here, there he owed me 75 bucks. It was really good. When you come to the end of... uh, the book of Job, God does something interesting. He comes to one of the friends of Job and he says to him, quite candidly, I'm angry with you. And the reason I'm angry with you is because you haven't spoken rightly of me. Now go to my servant Job and he will pray for you and I will hear his prayers and I will not deal with you according to your folly. You know what his folly was? Believing that he knew it was bad and what was good in Job's life. When God comes to the prophet Jeremiah, the people of Judah have been in bondage for 200 years. 
They've been there five generations. People have been born and people have died in captivity, not just in one country, but all over the Middle East. They are so far from the promised land that they've lost all hope of ever returning. And they know that they are to blame because they've disobeyed the Lord their God and He scattered them. They squandered the best gifts God could give them and all they want in the depth of their soul is to go home. But their principal perspective is that everything that has happened to them is bad. But God just says to Jeremiah, no, it's not bad, it's good. Listen to what he says to the prophet Jeremiah to tell to the people. Hear the word of the Lord. He who scattered Israel will gather them. He will watch over his flock like a shepherd. And suddenly they recognize it's not the end. It's the beginning. Suddenly they recognize that what they thought was bad actually is good because he will gather those he scattered. And that's nothing new. The Lord spoke to Moses a thousand years before he spoke to Jeremiah and he says the same thing. Tell my people when all of these blessings and curses that I've set before you come upon you. Even if I've banished you to the most distant lands under the heavens... From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. In other words, He'll bring you home. Have you ever thought about how many times the Bible uses the image of home to describe the very essence of what it means to have a relationship with Him? The psalmist says, Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, David recognized that whether he lived in a palace or he lived in heaven, he could live in the very presence of God at home. When his seven-day-old baby dies, remember that? He has been in sackcloth and ashes. He hasn't eaten for days. He's prayed fervently that that baby would live, and the Lord says no. He takes him. And the servants of David are scared to go to tell the king that the baby has died. They reason that, hey, listen, if he's having such a tough time when the baby's living, he'll really go crazy when he hears that the baby has died. And when they go and tell him, remember what David does? He gets up. He dusts himself off. He washes himself, puts on new clothes, and goes to the temple to worship. And they wonder, what's up? David, how is this that you mourned when he was alive and you celebrate when he died? Remember what David says? He will not return to me, but I will go to him. You know what he means? I'm going to go home. When Jesus is walking through the city of Jericho, a very wealthy place, a place of great R&R, the the greatest tax base in all of the Roman Empire, he sees a man in a tree and he stops and he looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down now for I am going to stay at your home, your house today. Coming home is perhaps the most powerful image in all of the Bible to describe God's desire for us. You know, years ago I did a destination wedding. 
And they wrote their own vows. And frankly, you know, the guy always speaks first, and he gave his first vow. And, and I, don't, I don't remember what he said, but I remember what the girl said. She looked her husband in the eye, and she said, I will be your home. Never forget that. And the reason she said it was because he never had a home. There's no greater image in all of the Bible that captures the essence of the deepest yearning of the human heart and soul than coming home. And even if you've had a terrible home life, that simply means that your yearning and desire for home, a place of safety and security and love and acceptance, is perhaps even deeper. Coming home. I can't tell you the number of people I've known over my lifetime who've known Jesus and have walked away from Him and they've wondered, is it ever possible for me to gain access again to Him in the way that I knew Him? They wanted to go home. Remember 12 years ago? Yeah, I know you remember 12 years ago. Pittsburgh Steelers playing the Indianapolis Colts. Playing a lot better than they did this year, right? Ben Roethlisberger won that game, that league championship game, with both of his arms. It wasn't his pass that won the game. It was his tackle. The Steelers were already leading the Colts. They were ready to score on the two-yard line of the Indianapolis Colts. He hands the ball to Jerome Bettis on his right. Bettis takes it into the pile. The ball flies in the air. The cornerback, Nick Harper, for the Indianapolis Colts, takes it out of the air and runs 55 yards. And there, Ben Roethlisberger puts out his left arm and he tackles him. You know what he said when he got to the sidelines? He turned to Jerome Bettis and said, Boss, you're going home. You're going home. If it hadn't been for that tackle... They would never have gotten to Detroit, the town in which Bettis grew up in, and they never would have won Super Bowl Forty. And all the rest of the game, Bettis is on the sideline shouting, I'm going home! I'm going home! Every time the Bible speaks of going home, it's speaking to people who've wandered away. They've drifted so far away from the Lord that they've begun to think of that bad is good and good is bad. But the Lord never changes. He always says the same thing. Come on home. You say, but how do you get there? How do you go home when you've wandered far from it? Well, Moses tells us here in this text, in three ways. First, he says, you must first remember the place. Verse 1, he says, And when all of these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse that I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all of the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Do you know what that means when you call them to mind? I used to think that just meant about the cursing and blessing. And then I thought about it and I said, no, they're very familiar with the curses and blessings. They're living the curses and blessings of God every day. When Moses says, when you call to mind, what he's talking about is they remember what home is like. 
when the resurrected Jesus comes to John on the island of Patmos, he says, I want you to take down a letter. I want to speak to several churches. And so he speaks to the church at Ephesus and Sardis, and he tells them the same thing. Remember from what you've fallen. In other words, remember what it was like when you were home. And remember where you are now. You know what God often uses to spark our memory of home? The things we call bad. In the greatest story Jesus ever told, there's only one son in that story who recognizes the significance of home, and that's the son that finds himself in a pig pen. In a place he thought was bad, but when he gets home, he recognizes that was exactly the best place for him. Because in that pig pen... He remembered what home was like. Second, Moses said, not only remember the place, remember the person who's at home. Look at verse 2, or listen to verse 2. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children. Obey His voice and all that He commands you today, and with all of your heart and with all of your soul. You know, if you read all of these verses in this particular section of the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, you'll see that Moses there refers to the Lord 12 times in the same way, the Lord your God. You know what he means? You've been living in places where people worship all kinds of gods, but I'm the Lord your God. You've been living in a land of idols, where you have actually created gods unto yourself that are a projection of your own desires. But I'm the Lord who never changes. I'm the God of Israel. And I am the one who has called myself your father. Somebody has said the official flower of Father's Day ought to be the dandelion. Because the more you trample on it, the more it seems to grow. The prodigal son understood that. When he gets home and he sees his father, he sees the full dimension of him. You know, it's interesting. When he's in the pig pen, he says, I remember the servants of my father. They have an abundance of food. I will go to my father and I will say to my father, I'm not worthy to be your son. You see, the first step in returning home is recognizing what home is. And then the next step is recognizing who's there. And then finally, it's also remembering His promise. Verses 4 and 5, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Matthew Henry, the great biblical commentator of several centuries ago, said, you know, twice in this text, Moses says obedience is required for restoration. In other words, if you obey him, he will restore you. And then Matthew Henry astutely says, but how can they obey when their very lack of obedience got them removed from the land in the first place. Now he's British, so he says, Ah, <laughs> this is the foundation of the promise. He who requires us to obey his promises grants us the grace we need to do it. 
He who requires us to return promises the grace to do it. You know, when you're in the when you read the scriptures and you find that whenever you're far from home and you realize it, it's only because the Father has put the desire to return into your heart. I can't tell you the number of people over the years that have come to me in tears thinking that they've blown it so badly they've walked away from the truth that they knew And I was able to say to them very plainly and truly, the only reason you're crying about it is because you've got a desire to go back. And that's only because He has planted that in your heart. You know, somebody said, when we all get to heaven, we listen to all of the words that the saints throughout the ages have pronounced. The most common words we will hear is not praise the Lord or I believe, but help me. Help me. Years ago, I read of a girl who was born in Traverse City in the early 1990s. She uh, had parents who were strict. At least that was her view. She used to say to people, they're really old-fashioned. They don't like the music I listen to. And when she got her first tattoo, her mother hit the ceiling. And then after a number of piercings, (laughs) both parents said, this has to stop. One night she got into it with her father. Probably the worst argument she's ever had with either parent. She ended it by saying, I hate you. I'll I'll always hate you. I want nothing to do with you. And then she decided to follow through on a plan she had conceived months earlier. She decided to leave. She wondered where she would go, and it came to her, I'll go to Detroit. There's no way they're going to look for me in Detroit. There's no way they'll think I'll go to Detroit. After all, all the things that are said about Detroit back in the 90s were bad. And so she hops a bus and rides seven hours to Detroit And she gets off the bus, and the second day, she's on the streets, and she sees a man driving a car bigger than any car she's ever seen. And he stops. And he says to her, are you lost? And she said, no. Well, you look hungry. She said, I am. He said, why don't you hop in? We'll go for lunch. So he takes her to a place for lunch. He says to her, you know, you don't look well. It looks like you're kind of scared. I can give you a couple of pills that could help you. And you know what? I'll say I could give you a job. Do you want a job? She knew she needed money, and so she said yes. They drove to a high-rise apartment. He took her to the top floor and said, this is your new place to live. It won't cost you anything, but you'll be working for me. As she sits in that apartment, she thinks to herself, man, I was... Why did I wait so long? I mean, I left that one-horse town, Traverse City, and now I'm in a big city, and I'm living at the top of a major apartment building. My folks back home, they're boring. I'm all grown up now. 
Small town girl is gone. I'm a big city girl now. She made good money. Men paid a lot to be with her. And then after a number of months, it happened. The first sign of the illness. When the big man with the big car found out, he came to her and said, these things don't get fixed very easily and we can't mess around with it. You need to leave right now. He put her on the streets. For a matter of weeks, she lived on the streets. She slept on a grate, found some cardboard to cover her, but she didn't sleep very well because every night as she laid there, she listened for footsteps. No longer did she feel all grown up. She felt like a little girl again. She was scared to death, lonely and lost. And one night, she reaches in her pocket for the last pill that she has, and as soon as she puts it in her mouth, she flashes back to years earlier in the month of May in Traverse City. If you've ever been there, it's filled, a city filled with cherry trees. And in May, they're in full blossom. And in her mind's eye, she thinks of the beauty of that place, and she longs for it. But how can I go back? How can I possibly go back? I've turned my back on my father and my mother. She can't get away from that thought. And so she goes and she finds a phone. And she places three calls to the same number. First time nobody answers. Second time nobody answers. Third time nobody answers. And she decides to leave a message the last time. And the message is simple. Hey dad, it's me. I was just wondering maybe. Just thinking maybe. Maybe I could come home. I'm going to catch a bus your way. It'll be there around midnight tomorrow. And let's put it this way. If you aren't there, I'll know to stay on the bus and go all the way to Canada. So at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, she got on the bus. And they traveled seven, eight hours back to Traverse City with all the stops in between. And during those hours, she thought to herself, I'm not sure this plan's going to work. First of all, I don't know if he's gotten my call. I don't know if they're away. And then, I'm not sure he even wants me back. I wonder if maybe, just maybe, they wished they had never given me life. And as she thinks about that, her throat constricts. She hasn't apologized to anybody in years. And then half out of desperation and half out of fatigue, she falls asleep. And a couple of hours later, she's awakened to the jarring announcement, Traverse City! Still groggy, she looks in the mirror at herself and she smooths her hair and she licks the lipstick off her teeth. And then she looks at her fingers and sees the tobacco stains and she wonders if anybody will see those. She gets off the bus, 
She walks into the terminal and she thinks, how appropriate, because my life is terminal. I bet nobody's there for me. Nothing in all of her experience could have prepared her for what she saw when she rounded the corner. There were 40 people there. Her mom and dad, her brothers and sisters, her aunts and uncles, her grandparents, they had party hats on, they had noisemakers, and some of them that weren't blowing in the noisemakers were saying, welcome home! And that was exactly what was plastered on that terminal wall. Suddenly out of the crowd, a man comes running to her and grabs her and hugs her and swings her around and says, welcome home, honey. She said, Dad, I'm sorry. I I screwed up. He interrupts her and says, there's no time for that, sweetheart. That's all in the past. We've got a party to get to. Of all the pictures in the Bible that speak to the deepest yearning of our human soul, there is no more perfect portrait of of His desire for us than to come home. That's why when anybody sees me and they've got tears in their eyes and they're saying, I'm just not sure if I can ever come back. That's a thrill for me because I can say, yes, you can. Because I've wandered away all kinds of times. And he always says, come on home. Whatever it takes, he'll get you home. You know why? Because he's the definition of good. So many of the things we think are bad are actually good. There's no more important message at Christmas than that. Think of it. Jesus left his home to bring us all the way home. Not just once, but every time we need it. Think about that. After all, it's almost Christmas.